Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, they are like a dream. Like grass is the reward, renewed in the morning, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands. Upon us, yes, establish the work of our hands. Well, this again is the day that the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. It has been quite a week. It feels like a long week, and uh, I think... Uh, to be truthful, a week where we uh, learned perhaps the reality of the situation that we're in and um, the idea of this uh, being a short temporary arrangement uh, with a mostly empty room and you and your living rooms might be longer than we had expected. But let me tell you what has encouraged me this week and uh, that is that if I have my information correct there's about seven of our Sunday school classes that were able to meet this morning over an electronic uh, video uh, conferencing software. Uh, our deacon body this past Monday uh, in the evening took a test drive on that software and it worked and it worked really well. So we spent the better part of the week uh, making calls and doing our own test drives and getting people gathered together. And hopefully uh, many of you that are watching now were able to meet with your Sunday school class in the previous hour and uh, see their faces and hear their voices. And uh, just to do that um, is incredibly encouraging. That's what we'll need to be able to stick together and uh, to be the hands and feet of Christ and uh, it's just simplistically doing the best we can with what we've got. And uh, for the time being, that's what we're going to work very hard to do. 
um, the week was just not long enough to make sure that all of our Sunday school classes had the all their their ducks in a row. But uh, next week, uh, this coming week, we'll do our best to make sure we get everybody that wants to gather with their Sunday school class able to gather with their Sunday school class. Well, um, let's turn to John chapter 11. We'll get back with our series in John and... Um, it's my intention to stick with John leading us up to Easter week or Holy Week as it's referred to. Uh, there's a lot we're going to be learning and uh, it'll be some time before we actually get to the, the events of the Passion Week as far as what we usually study during the time of Easter. Uh, but we'll get into this, uh, at least the beginning stages of it as we're very close in John's Gospel to getting to the point where we see the last week of Christ's life on earth. How many of you remember from school when you were younger, vocabulary and spelling class? Um, I remember it. I wasn't particularly fond of it, and I've never been a good speller. I, I asked my wife continually how to spell something. Uh, but I was better at the vocabulary part. And... The vocabulary part, I suppose, made sense to me because even as a younger person, I understood that words didn't mean anything if they didn't mean anything. Does that make sense? A word has its definition, and its definition gives us the basis for its use in our vocabulary. So having lots of words with separate, specific meanings can allow us to communicate a lot uh, more uh, interestingly, meaningfully, uh, intelligently. And what I want to do today is uh, sometimes I, I try to mix things up and make it easier to follow or organize what we'll be studying. So instead of three or four or five points to chart our way, we're going to use three words, vocabulary words, to help us organize our, our time together. Uh, but before we do that, let me read to you the last section of John 11. And uh, we'll stop where we begin in verse 1 of chapter 12. Uh, but we'll consider that our portion for the day. We'll read it and then we'll pray. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one should die, one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. 
And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should tell them or should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're gathered together. We have our Bibles open in our laps. Lord, we ask that you open to us the meaning of these words. Help us to understand them and then help us to obey them. And we ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Now, from where we left off, and this would be weeks ago, um, back in February, with the passage that has to do with uh, raising Lazarus. In fact, you might have a header in your Bible at verse 38. Jesus raises Lazarus. Well, we stop there. And then next week, we'll look at chapter 12, where there's actually a dinner for Lazarus. Uh, to celebrate what had happened. And when we stopped in February, we almost said, boy, there's a lot left to be desired as to what happened after this grand miracle. A man who's dead is now alive. What'd they do? Well, there's this chapter we study today, or, or paragraph rather, between those events. So we work on that today, and we'll pick up with the story of Lazarus next time. Um, Look at verse 45 one more time. We'll work through this just passage by passage. But let's first get the lay of the land. What's taking place and why is it significant? Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what had been done that Jesus did, believed in him. Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the response to what happened when Lazarus was raised... Uh, well, there's, there's two reactions to this. First, there were those who believed. And uh, they saw the miracle, most fantastic miracle yet. You almost want to say, well, why didn't they all believe? Good grief, what else, what else do you need? The man was dead, now he's alive. But there were others that went straight to the authorities. And uh, if we do our homework, given the public knowledge of the hostility toward Jesus... It's not likely that these men went for the purpose of winning over the Pharisees, getting together and thinking, you know, we've got this one more miracle. Maybe, maybe now they'll change their minds. More likely what they're doing is going to turn Jesus in. And it's this report that the Pharisees receive over what had happened that leads to the gathering of a special council. We see this in verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. We can't let him go on like this. The Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. So the council that's referred here was made up of the Pharisees and uh, the, the chief priests. And uh, most of the chief priests uh, were practically Sadducees. So you've got a group of Pharisees and Sadducees. Most of the run-ins we've seen so far have to do with Pharisees. But now they're going to take somewhat of a back seat to the work of the, the priests and the Sadducees. And if you add all of these groups together, they're known as the Sanhedrin. And this is the first time uh, that we're seeing this whole group convening. 
And uh, most of the time this would consist of 71 members and is more or less the equivalent of our Supreme Court. This is where the Jews would hammer out, uh, deliberate, determine what to do when they've got a problem on their hands. So they get together and what we read here about uh, in the ESV, it says, what are we to do? Um, More woodenly, this would be what are we accomplishing So rather than gathering to decide what to do, they first discuss of the actual productivity of what they have been doing to make sure that this carpenter who gathers multitudes doesn't get out of hand. And uh, the answer to that question is is none. They haven't been able to, to keep him from doing what he's doing at all. They say he's performed many signs. He sure had. Um, And then if you just add up what we've read recently, the embarrassing situation between the man that was born blind who's walking around telling everybody exactly how many fingers they're holding up. And then on top of that, you've got a man who's been dead four days and now he's walking around alive as he can be. Um, You wonder why they're not sitting there reassessing their thinking. Maybe... If we can't beat this guy, we, we join this guy. But that's not what they do. Mark the progression of, of the, the fear that's involved in this room. If we let this go on, everyone will believe Rome will take away our place and our nation. So they're not necessarily afraid of Jesus. And he'd been pretty clear that he, he wasn't seeking public office. He didn't have anything. He's a teacher, a rabbi. He'd already made it clear to them. So that's not the issue. What's the issue is that they're afraid of an uprising. They're afraid of what the people are doing in response to what he's saying. They're afraid that he might get some political legs behind him, even if he's not the figurehead, but movements that might spin off from this. And in the situation they're in, the reprisals from Rome could be swift and they could stack up quite the collateral damage. So, presiding over this Sanhedrin, John gets a little more specific here, and he mentions a man by name. The man's name is Caiaphas. He was the son-in-law of Annas. We learn that elsewhere. But we're introduced to him for the first time so far here in verse 49. Verse 49 says, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, and uh, with, with Rome having their hands in what went on, the high priest's position could move around quite a bit. And most of the people considered Annas to be the true high priest. Uh, that gives us details as to why John would, would mention it as he did. And then he says this, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So what we've got, as far as the specifics that John gives us, we must assume that they went on for a while. And that there probably was no agreement between the room. And then at some point, to put a lid on it all, it seems, Caiaphas just blurts out, you don't know anything. Which gives us some indication as to how he uh, makes friends and wins people. Um, but then he goes on to say this very politically veiled execution orders, what it amounts to. And uh, 
begins by sweeping everything else everybody'd set up until that point to the side and says basically you don't know what's good for you if you knew what was good for you you'd know that it was better for one man to die instead of all of you die if we can't snuff out this problem so it's a very brief speech it's a politically correct speech It's a speech that means simply there's one thing to do, and that's to kill Jesus and get him out of the way at whatever cost. But he certainly couldn't say it that way. So what we see is really a grand example of what I want to use as our first vocabulary word. Okay? What he had to do was present this notion on the grounds of political expediency. There's your first word. And that has to do with the nation's well-being. Here's expediency defined. The quality of being convenient and practical despite possibly being improper or immoral. But it basically boils down to convenience. It was convenient for them. It wasn't convenient for Jesus. But it was convenient for the most of them. And the word expedient here is usually laced with a, with a bit of political... Uh, corruption as well because there are a few that really seem uh, to benefit from what's convenient for the most even if it's not at all convenient for a very few now the King James Version the NS uh, the NASB which is New American Standard uh, Bible and the Revised Standard Version the three of those use the word expedient The ESV that I'm reading from right now uses a more general term, better, better for you. Same as the NIV, they leave it a little looser. But the context gives us all that we need in order to use the word expediency in the definition that we know it for. With uh, a little bit of corruption on the side. Caiaphas' reasoning is rather simple. Both from the perspective of what's good for international diplomacy between uh, Jerusalem and Rome. And especially what's good for the ruling party. Because they cannot continue to rule if they're conquered and uh, di- disposed or removed by Rome. And then if we're going to get very detailed here. When Caiaphas says one man should die. He's using something that we see from time to time. Politically speaking, it's called sacrificial language. Um, It's him for us, in other words. And that's a good thing. Because everybody knows sometimes we have to put up with a lesser evil in order to make sure that a larger evil doesn't happen. And this is brilliant on the part of Caiaphas to get exactly what he wants. It's the expedient thing to do. But the question still remains, is it the right thing to do? Or has justice been sacrificed for expediency? Sometimes you can't have expediency and justice at the same time. Caiaphas knows this. I'm sure the room knows this as far as the Sanhedrin. And it's clear to us as we read along. But it gets very interesting in verse 51. John begins to do what he does often to give us a behind-the-scenes look as to what's happening and some extra information to help us make sense of the story. Along the way, he gives us these editorial comments. And in verse 51, 
It's almost as if they're in brackets. Now, he did not say this of his own accord. Say what? Who? Caiaphas didn't say all of that about one man dying for the good of the country on his own accord. Have you ever said something kind of offhand? Maybe you're just messing around, joking, and you say something that later looks as if you had prophetic skills. You called it. I told you so. When really the truth is, you didn't know what you were talking about. It just kind of worked out that way. Well, this is not unlike what Caiaphas is saying. Because he has no idea the depth to which he has just made a prophecy. It says, being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So what you've got here, as far as the theological ramifications of this little passage out of the paragraph, theology means the study of God. We're learning a lot about our God by just what John is telling us in this passage. But both Caiaphas and John understand Jesus' death to be substitutionary on two different levels. But they're both on the same page, though they don't realize that, especially Caiaphas. Either Jesus dies or the nation dies. If he dies, the nation lives. It's his life for their life. But while Caiaphas is only concerned with the political ramifications of what's going on, John is inviting us to think in terms of the Lamb of God who's here to take away the sin of the world, which is a theme he's been building on since we began this study. So I, for one, am thankful that John takes these little side... uh, parentheses to give us background information as to what's happening we read across that and we go the story's beginning to take shape so israel's highest official with all the authority associated with his office spoke of jesus death as the only way in which his people could be saved he's thinking materially we know that this is spiritually israel heard from the lips of their own high priest even though he had no idea what he was saying. And then notice that there was both the word gather and scattered in that passage last week. If you were watching, Christ promised to build his church. Has everything to do with these patterns of gathering and scattering. And now the church is actually under construction as the word of God and the gospel is gathering from the four corners. What will eventually be an innumerable group of people that we read about in Revelation. That's taking place right here now. And then the last part of that little passage, the Greek indicates that they resolved on this day. Not just planned or plotted, but resolved. Made up their minds. The decision's been made. It remains only to carry it out as efficiently as is compatible with political expediency. Jesus is sentenced to death. And by the time you get to verse 54, we learn this is the reason why Jesus left Bethany. He therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. There he stayed with his disciples. He didn't go very far, but on the edge of the wilderness so he could get away if he needed to, private enough that he's not disturbed. It won't be long before he heads back, but we see periods of time where he secludes himself for the purpose of preparation for what is to come. And I think it's, It's great to hear that during this difficult time, the disciples were there with him. They're sticking together. 
And then verse 55, just some details tacked on to the end here to make us understand what's coming down the pike. It's, it's really serving as the final prelude before Christ's last week. Um, Passover's at hand. It takes a week for people to get their purification right before Passover week. Um, there in verse 55, uh, people are looking for Jesus. That's a testimony to the fact that this is a nationally known thing and it's become quite the scandal. And then we read, finally, the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, so they put out a warrant for his arrest. Anyone who knows has to say something. And that takes us right up until chapter 12 where there's this feast a meal in the home of Lazarus, and then we're into what we call the Passion Week in short order. Let's take a moment to step back from what we've studied this morning. I've only given you one of those three vocabulary words. And what I'd like to do is try to just pause on the story that happened long ago. Now that we've got it uh, in the hopper, we've, we've explained it. I think it's easy enough to understand at least what's going on. And then what I'd like to do is try to take a step back far enough into where we're at right now and uh, do one of those comparisons between the wasness and the isness. You know, those are made up words, but what, what was in the scriptures have something to say about what is right here and now. And uh, good grief, right here and now is about as unique as I think any of us that would call ourselves part of this generation. Um, what do we do with all this? What can we learn from it? Are there, are there correlations? Or is this different? Um, might be surprised what we can find uh, by way of, of compare and contrast. What we've got here, the, the wasness, what we just read, is a governing body behind closed doors deliberating over what to do regarding something that they've determined to be a threat to the well-being of the entire population. They decide that it's better for the whole population if the well-being of one man is sacrificed in order to secure their own well-being. That's what's going on with the special council meeting of the Sanhedrin. And I think it fits fine. It's, it's probably a classic example of what we defined as the term expediency. Quality of being convenient and practical despite possibly being improper or immoral. And... Its application to this situation is a, is a good match. Justice for one was sacrificed for the convenience of many. That'd be the nation. Jesus is the one. And the advancement of a few, which is the rulers, they seek to become even more powerful than they were before. If this works, this is expediency. But what about here and now? It might sound something similar, but the pieces are a little different. So it's not the same, but though it may be similar. Over the past few weeks, federal, state, local governments have deliberated over what to do about what is surely a threat to the well-being of the population of not just the United States, but the whole world, especially those that are at higher risk. They have decided, I believe rightly so, that the well-being of those at greater risk is worth some sacrifice of the greater population's freedom of mobility. It seems to make sense. We're going to stay away from each other. Hopefully not infect each other with an infectious virus. 
uh, this seems to be common sense. So we wouldn't call any of that expediency, would we? It's costing us some things. Life as we know it is a lot different. Uh, But as far as any immorality or even impropriety, I don't think I've seen anything on that level that would put basic human rights at risk. Um, Though there are probably some individuals or businesses that uh, are positioned to do very well, especially with some of the panic that is a result of some of these things that are going on. So let me define a second word. Two of these words I think are going to really help us with this passage. And one of these words I think is really going to help us with ourselves. This is the one that will help us with ourselves. And it's a lot like expediency, but just with the corruption part removed from it. And what you've got left is pragmatism. It's the idea of being practical. It's an approach that assesses the truth of meaning of theories or beliefs in terms of the success of their practical application. Let me boil that down for you. If it works, do it. That's pragmatism. And that's basically hardwired into the American mind. Uh, We've been working hard on finding things that work good for a very long time. And... uh, Really, if you want to get philosophical and just back the truck way up, you will find that at the point where, especially America, decided that we can't really know truth. Okay, if we can't really know truth, well then how will we govern ourselves? Well, we'll just do what works until it doesn't. And when it doesn't, we'll find something else that works. On the surface, it's, it's not... Corruption. It's not a misuse of things to help oneself and just kind of turn a blind eye to whatever justice has to be slain in that attempt. Pragmatism is just trying to do the best we can with what we've got, really. Uh, the way that we're meeting now is a practical solution to, to alternatives we'd rather not. So on the surface, there's nothing wrong with this at all. Now, we're studying our Bibles, and we usually want to be good students and try on all the shoes to see if any of the shoes fit. And while the church may have a problem with expediency, and I do think they do, I don't think the current situation is what helps put that expediency on display. The church has had a problem for a long time, especially with certain things like, uh, I don't know, jettisoning the clear teaching of the Word of God to avoid conflicts with people that we know don't agree with that. Uh, There comes a time where we're just going to have to be Christians if we're Christians. And really, intellectually honest people, I think, respect that. if If you invite a Christian to pray... And then you're surprised when he finishes his prayer in Jesus' name. There's probably something wrong with that. Um, If we're being intellectually honest. So we do have a problem sometimes when we, for expediency's sake, capitulate and give up a lot of what the scriptures say we cannot give up. But as a pastor in this situation, uh, I think I'm far more worried about 
the long-term effects, even short-term effects of just good old-fashioned pragmatism and what it can do to the church if we're not careful. Um, I'll just give you some examples, and we've already been through this. The technology our Sunday school classes used this morning is nothing new. It's been around for a while, but it's never been used like it's been used in the last two weeks. I'm surprised the thing hasn't crashed, maybe even exploded at the demand put on it. And we're, we're praying and we're hoping it continues to work. Same thing about working at home. There have been lots of people that work at home. It's a growing trend. It has been. But after this is all over, there will be more people working at home than have ever worked at home, and it'll probably stick. Um, and that might not necessarily be a bad thing. It's an efficient thing. But to go back to last week and ask a question, what will change about the church through all of these things? Because I, I truly believe that after this is over, the world in America will be different in many ways. And it, it might not return back to the way it was. Is that true about the church? Is that good? Is that bad? Is that ugly? Is that indifferent? We've got to figure that out. And we've got to make sure uh, that we think our way through this. Sitting in your living room... Watching the service like this is in some ways uh, more convenient than getting up early, putting on your good clothes, um, eating breakfast. Or, see, you can eat your breakfast now. There's probably some of you that are eating right now. I'm not sure. You'd never get away with that in here, but you can get away with that at home. It's convenience, and you might like it. But what we need to do is make sure we don't get a attached to some of that. Because even though this part of what we do as Christians might actually be more convenient under this situation, the rest of our job has gotten increasingly difficult. And the workarounds haven't even been explored yet. That's why one of the things I felt very passionate about making sure we got it done this week and next week was that you can still meet during Sunday school. Because we're going to have to stay together. Uh, just, just because we can't meet here doesn't let us off the hook for being the body of Christ. Each uniquely gifted. Apart from each other, we can't function. Together we can, that by God's design. So we've got to make sure um, that we're doing this correctly. Pragmatism. And what it'll do to the church. Um... I'll just get to the point. The temptation will be to abandon what we would otherwise call faithful ministry, not for the sake of expediency, because it's causing us problems, but for practicality's sake, because it's not convenient. In other words, being Americans, being pragmatists, this isn't working for me anymore is what I hope we never arrive at. Um, we've used this term in the past, depravity check. Um, by default, what we want are things that will give us more and ask less of us. But we don't need to be naive in thinking that the way we look at our church would be immune from that. It's not will, what will happen, but it's what could happen. 
And I wrote this down. When adversity comes, it has. And when that challenges our priorities, it has. Upset our routine, definitely. Eliminates comforts. Yep. And raises our stress level. Our faithfulness will also be tested. So here's where I want to introduce you to the third vocabulary term. Now, the Pharisees and Caiaphas were expedient. I don't know we'd go that far. We just look at things practically. Well, let's look at one more. And actually, what I want to do is read into chapter 12. Uh, this is getting into next week's story. We're going to look at it again. But I think there's a contrast here that will absolutely... Um, Redefine our thinking on some things. Verse 1 of chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, here again, John's giving us background, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. What Mary did was not practical, and it surely wasn't expedient. It was something else altogether. It's what we call extravagant. That's your third Vocabulary word for the day. Extravagance. Lack of restraint in spending money or use of resources. A thing on which too much money has been spent or which has used up too many resources. So, the contrast between a Caiaphas who's willing to have Jesus killed to keep the peace and Mary who's willing to spend a year's paycheck on the feet of Jesus is one monstrous contrast, wouldn't you say? What about the Son of God leaving His home in heaven to become a man like anyone else? That's not expediency. To give Himself to a people, even His own family, who would despise and reject Him, that was not practicality. To lay down on a crossbeam and be crucified for a lost world was most certainly extravagant. You've heard it said, did he pay too much? Well, it depends. When have you ever done anything extravagant? Any of you listening that have ever been in love? It's probably the basis from which you have done extravagant things. And I don't know, you might be like the, the most of us. That's usually early in the relationship, isn't it? The reason why the uh, engagement ring cost more than the wedding band um, 
at the point in my life where I determined that I was going to propose marriage to my wife. I had been saving for some time while I made my mind up. Uh, after a conversation with my dad, I made it up a lot quicker. Uh, he told me uh, I was an idiot if I let her get away, and I might not even be his own son. Um, but I got my money together, and I went uh, shopping around, try to find a place first, because I'm, I'm not just going to do business with this big tag item with anybody. So I finally found somebody that uh, sounded like he understood what I was looking for, and the sales pitch wasn't something I was you know, offended by. Um, but I'd done some research, and being the traditionalist that I am, I, I, I figured out what standard as far as how much of a man's salary you're supposed to put away annually to pay for the ring. It's a good chunk. And uh, I had that with me, and we sat down, and uh, he started explaining things that I'd already read about. And uh, I stopped him at one point, and I said, Now, let me tell you about Corey. She has these elegantly beautiful, slender fingers. And uh, the size of this thing is going to need to look right. Because if there's one thing about her personality that just won't work, she's, she's, she's not showy. Uh, she'll show things off. It, it'll be a bad move on my part if it's too big. I know that sounds crazy. And he said, well, yeah, you're, you're in a minority here. Most people spend their money on the size of this thing. And I said, well, I've studied... And I also found out that the cost of these stones also have to do with, with how clear they are inside, the, the dirt that's inside of them. And the, the fewer the inclusions, I think is the word, the costlier it is. I said, I know how much I'm going to spend. I'm not interested in getting ripped off. I want to get my money's worth. But I also know what size I want. And you told me the size that will be balanced out right will save me some money. I don't want to save the money. I want to spend that money on making this more rare than others. In fact, you take my money and find in that size the rarest stone you can find. And if you do that, you'll probably still be a hundred miles away from how rare this girl is that I plan to give it to. I'm crazy about her. And I'm going to spend this money, all of it. So call me back. He did. It's on her finger right now. But that's probably the height of extravagance. Um, motivated by the fact that I was crazy about this girl. Question being, is it possible to be too extravagant in our love for Jesus, given what he's done for us? Well, you've got a group of men talking over expediency and how to dispose of the man who left heaven to make sure that we were squared with his father because of our sins that he's going to pay for himself. And just putting this together where we're at right now, we've been in conservation mode for a few weeks now. And that's tough for Americans. Um, and we'll have to make sure that we watch our material resources for some time, perhaps. But spiritually speaking, I'm becoming more and more convinced that we might not be right in the middle of the best time in our generation to be extravagant spiritually than we've ever been. 
in our prayer, in our service, in our encouragement, our giving, most of all, our witness. Do you know that we're talking about this earlier in the week? That just the, the, the tone of people that we do interact with, even if uh, it's in our neighborhood or uh, trying to gather some groceries, there is there, there's fear out there, but there's also a, a, a sobriety, a seriousness, uh, a receptiveness, I think, for something that might work <laughs> and not on a pragmatic level. But, but in other words, when, when the things that we've thrown our lives into uh, aren't necessarily paying us the dividends they once were, uh, and, and, and maybe uh, we knew less than we thought we did, Maybe it's time to exchange some of that fear with faith. And I think people are open to that. I think we may see uh, a windfall of evangelistic opportunities that we've yet to see in some time. So because of our love for the one that first loved us, let it be said that we resemble the extravagance of Mary much more so than the expediency of Caiaphas, especially under something like a global pandemic. If we Christians can't dig deep and find what the world needs in a time like this, I don't know that, that we're, we've got it at all, or we even get it, really. Expediency, pragmatism, extravagance. I think there's enough to think our way through for the afternoon. And as I understand it, uh, middle school will be meeting tonight over their connection. And uh, we'll be working hard next week to get the remaining classes together. But it's done me good just to be in the house of the Lord and connected to you through a video connection. Um, Let me pray with you. And we'll thank the Lord for this, our time together, His Word. And then I'll read to you a benediction. And uh, we'll be about whatever it's time to do. For us, we'll go home. For you, I suppose you go to the kitchen and get lunch ready. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to study your Word in in a, a new way. Really, the study part is no different. The mechanism is... But Lord, teach us from, from your word how not to do things. To do things right. Lord, practicality makes sense in so many situations, but at the end of the day, your word trumps practicality. It gives us our, our directives. It tells us what's true and what's false. It'll make the decisions as to how we live our lives and what we're to do. It'll show us how to be obedient to you how to maintain our faithfulness as a body gathered believers in a time where we can't see each other face to face. So Lord, may you give us on the basis of love the ability to be extravagant with what you've given to us and our ability to give the same to others. Just like it didn't make sense for someone to take what they'd saved for your burial And open it up and to use it in the moment while you were with them. Lord, may we sense your presence here. And may we take the lid off some things we've been saving. 
maybe for a time long from now or whatever. Lord, you be the judge. You prompt our hearts. But Lord, may we not hold on to something tightly that was given to us freely. May we freely give it to someone else. And trust you to open the floodgates of whatever you see fit to reward us accordingly. Thank you for Wake Chapel. Thank you for the internet and a connection. Lord, thank you for the blood sacrifice of your son, which squares us with Jesus and his father. Lord, thank you for all these things. We ask them in your precious name. Amen. Well, let me read to you from the book of Numbers. And this is chapter 6. This was instruction given to Moses, given to Aaron, of how they were to bless Israel. Verse 24, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Until next time.